Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. My guest is David Bacon. He is a beautiful author. His book, Illegal People, touches on the interconnection of labor. I love the way you bring us, David, to this need to not only see uh, our work as something to be cherished and valued, but also to bring awareness to the most marginalized and most um, oppressed workers, migrant workers, you know, agricultural workers, the very foundational people for our, the survival of our society. So can we talk a little bit about um, how do we then engage in not only educating our communities about injustice, about inequality, about the intersectionality, you know, how economic uh, markers don't always account for the loss of life and the loss of connections that we suffer when we create this structure and multi-layer social groups of workers, workers who are valued, workers who are seen, workers who are invisible. Well, I think that the, the first thing is that um, people, um, people on the bottom, people, uh, when I speak about when I say bottom, I mean economically. In other words, people at, with the lowest wages, the least secure jobs, people who are employed, who are overwhelmingly, um, both in Canada and in the U.S., um, women, people of color, immigrants, um, people need to be organized, people need to organize themselves so that they can speak in their own voice, make their own demands, and also reach out for support and alliances with the broader community around them. I don't think that feeling sorry for people or just advocating for people is a um, gets as much of anywhere. People, first of all, have to be organized to speak for themselves and to make demands for themselves. Um, you know. Two of the organizations in Canada that um, uh, helped to do this that I think, you know, are the ones I admire a great deal. One is um, in the Okanagan Valley, um, Rama, who works with the farm workers there, and then Justicia for Migrant Workers, um, both of which are um, migrant-centered and migrant-led and women-led organizations that um, are have as their objective the helping to um, set up the conditions in which farm workers can organize. You know, on here on our side of the of the border, here in Washington State, we have this new union, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, and just recently during this period of the pandemic, you know, we had strikes again in the Okanagan Valley down in Yakima. Um, in the Yakima Valley, um, we had strikes of workers, um, immigrant workers, mostly women, in the apple um, packing sheds. And people were going on strike because of the pandemic, um, because people were getting sick and dying in those sheds and the companies weren't taking adequate health measures or, you know, even compensating people for the fact that they were having to work during this very dangerous period. And as a result of that, the union over for workers, Familias Unidas, um, the union for the workers over on the um, on the Washington coast 
uh, Bellingham and, and uh, Mount Vernon, um, they went over to Yakima, helped those workers with their strikes, and now those workers are organizing their own union, which is called Trabajadores Unidos por la Justicia, and the similarity of the names is, is no accident there. So I think that what's happening there is the first you know, precondition to dealing um, with this, and that is that, you know, in this case, farm workers who um, both in um, on the West Coast in both Canada and in, in the U.S. are overwhelmingly immigrant workers, almost all from Mexico. Those people need to be able to organize. Now, to, to get organized, um, first of all, obviously, there has to be some willingness and desire on the part of people themselves. And just again, as this example of what happened in the Yakima Valley, the first thing that happened was those workers themselves walked out of those packing sheds on strike. In other words, people kind of self-organized and they sort of rose up. But then they also had the help of this other group of already organized immigrant workers, you know, Ramon Torres and other people like that, um, in Familias Unidas, who went to Yakima um, to help them to you know figure out how to organize better, how to deal with the legal system, how to kind of you know confront the problems that um, our farm workers face when they um, try to organize. You know, as as a result of this, what we see in Washington State is that there are now big fights going on about the um, working conditions of farm workers, which are causing um, sickness and even um, death among farm workers. We had two farm workers die at the big, um, huge Gebers Ranch, again, the Okanagan Valley on the U.S. side of the border, who died um, from COVID. And the reason for that is, is that the company was, um, these are our immigrant workers brought in from um, from Mexico and from Jamaica under the H-2A program, like the Canadian SAW program. And the company was putting them in barracks in which people were sleeping in bunk beds very close to each other, taking them to and from work on buses where people were packed together. Um, and so those, the, the lack of social distancing and the lack of um, safe conditions, which the company was basically imposing as a sort of profit-making, money-saving measure, um, led to the deaths of, of two workers in July. And this company just got, you know, fined for the first time. We finally saw a company in Washington State, you know, that was had to actually, well, uh, they haven't paid it yet, but supposedly they're going to have to pay a, a substantial fine as a result of it, $2 million. Um, but as Rosalinda Guillen, um, a farm worker activist in, in Bellingham says, there is no amount of money that can pay for the life of a worker. So even though the companies get fined, um, still, the problem is what actually happened there. And those unions, you know, Familias Unidas, the United Farm Workers, um, this new union, Trabajadores Unidos, they are um, basically trying to force the government of the state of Washington to ban the bunk beds, for instance, um, and to make it uh, to force the companies to provide housing for those workers who are being brought in under these programs that will not place people in danger of death because of their being so close together. And because people are organized, they have the ability to fight about this. Um, so it's, it's a fight that's still going on. At one point, you know, they were able to force the state government in Washington 
to set up a commission to kind of um, monitor the conditions of these H-2A um, guest workers. Um, but then when the state issued a regulation, it permitted the company to still use these bunk beds. So they're still fighting about it. But the reason why they're able to fight is because they're organized. So the first condition is people have to be able to organize. So in terms of the broader support of the community around them, um, that's what kind of gives people the political space to do that. Um, the reason why the workers in Bellingham were able to organize their union to begin with starting in 2013 when they went on strike was because they had a boycott of the product of the company that they were working for, which was Driscoll Berries, the world's largest berry company. And the fact that students and workers and union members all up and down the Pacific coast here in the U.S. supported that boycott and set up boycott committees on campuses and went out and picketed stores, that was what put enough pressure on the company to basically um, force the company to negotiate a contract, which sort of they created the the legal <laughs> status, I guess you would say, for this union, Familias Unidas por la Justicia. So you need both of these things together. You need both the people themselves to take action and to organize themselves and to make their demands, but then you also need for the rest of the community around them to sort of rally together um, to support them. Um, you, but, you know, when you have those two things that, that come together, that makes it possible, I think, for um, people to struggle. And I see that same thing happening in Canada, you know, again, with Ram and Justicia um, from my workers. I think that they are basically involved in that same in that same process. In many ways, you know, um, people don't know their power until they experience it by acting on it. It's easy to feel discouraged. You know, it's been a year of pandemic. Many people have lost their jobs. Many people are struggling to make ends meet. And the news are constantly feeding us a, a very consistent diet of fear, right? Counting numbers of bodies, counting the numbers of contagion. And, and so it's easy to get distracted and to lose focus and realize that we have just ended in a four-year period of mass aggression against migrant workers, against migrants in general. And the difference between migrants and immigrants, you know, migrants are people from this region, from the Americas, and immigrants are people coming across the oceans. And so very few people even know that difference, you know. So how do we... Um, not only connect, right, the political um, education that is needed to realize that both Democrats and Republicans have not always been pro-migrants um, or pro-workers' rights, but rather that it is social movements that force those governments to take action. And I know it's really hard to imagine the government being on our side after having Donald Trump incarcerating children and separating families, you know, and, and that's, that tragic history is part of our, you know, of our past now. And perhaps, you know, how do we ensure that that is not repeated in the future? You know, it's been a very, very hard year. And, um, you know, the media keep telling us how many people have died. And um, in a way, people 
it sort of encourages people to feel paralyzed and fearful. And of course, if, if you don't have a job or if you're at a job that's putting you in danger, there's a lot to be afraid of. Um, this is not imaginary fears, but um, you know, I have a friend, <clears throat> Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who wrote this wonderful book called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And one of the things that Roxanne you know, said that I keep, keep thinking about you know, all the time. And, and that is, she said, you know, that in the, and here she's talking about indigenous people. Um, she said, she said, survival itself is a form of resistance. So just what we do as people to survive this current period, to work, to not get sick, to support our families, to keep on going, um, that is a form of resistance. And so I don't think that we need to feel that in some way that, um, that we're not participating in the effort to sort of get social justice and, and change the world um, because we are preoccupied with just trying to stay alive. I think trying to stay alive under these circumstances and trying to work and trying to eat and trying to support our families is itself an act of resistance because in some ways, you know, the, the inequality and the injustice of this world has become far more dangerous now than it has been before. You could almost say it's trying to kill us. And so obviously we can't change the world if we don't survive. And so this is part of, of resistance. But, you know, I think that, that we've also been able to see during this period of time that people have not been passive. You know, that, uh, that we as people have not just simply accepted the death and the sickness and uh, the danger and the having to go to work or not having a job or not being able to pay the rent. You know, we have many millions of people now um, who have not been paying rent since God knows when, you know, February, March, April, you know, and who stand to be evicted. Um, so surviving that, you know, just being able to keep a roof over your head or for people who don't have a roof over their head, um, surviving out in the streets, living on the street during a period of the pandemic and not dying, I think is a, is an incredible achievement. <laughs> um, so again, you know, I think that, the that this is something that we need to appreciate about ourselves, that we are still here. We have survived. And then we look at everything from, you know, the strikes of those people in those Apple packing sheds to the rent strikes going on in the Bay Area where I live in Oakland, which, you know, I was just uh, on a uh, uh, taking photographs of this demonstration, this sort of bicycle and car caravan organized by tenant unions that went from building to building to building here in Oakland where there are rent strikes going on. Um, so, you know, we are not just simply rolling over here and, and saying, well, okay, um, do what you want. <laughs> we are trying to still achieve justice in the midst of this um, terrible situation. And the fact that we were able to get rid of Trump, um, I think, is, a, um, is a, a, a big achievement. It was not anything that was automatic. And I'm not saying that that getting rid of Trump is the be all and end all of, of social change here in the U S but it was a precondition. And we can kind of see 
from what happened in the Capitol on January the 6th, that there are fascist groups among Trump's base who were certainly out there to do what they could to keep him in office. And they have always been part of that base. And to be able to defeat him in that election, given the danger that he represented, I think was an important um, achievement too. So we have to keep on fighting. We gotta keep on organizing. You know, this is not the end. But the day after the the day after the election, when um, when the results came in from Pennsylvania that said that Trump had finally lost, people went dancing down the street in my neighborhood. So you know, I mean, it just made me appreciate how uh, much people wanted that change to happen and how hard people worked at it. You know, it didn't happen because big-time developers contribute a lot of money to the Democratic Party. It happened because people, even during the pandemic, went out there and knocked on doors and made phone calls and did all those things that we know we have to do if we want to compete in an electoral environment. And I think it's really important to remember that uh, social struggle is something that we engage in for a vision of a world that we are co-creating, you know. I, I also know that history has vindicated that our, our, our efforts are never in vain. You know, we look at Venezuela, how in the time of pandemic, even against all the sanctions that were imposed against them by the U.S., even against all the repression and attempts of invasion, you know, they, they, they're doing, they're, they're, they elected the president they wanted, the people are still organizing, they're still mobilizing their communities and having community councils that worry about what people will eat, how will they, you know, generate food? I look at the um, people from Honduras who, despite the military coup of 2009, you know, continued to struggle to create areas, you know, like the fight in the Awan Valley, you know, where campesinos, peasants, took over the lands of a very rich landowner and, you know, set up a co-op and, and took over the land. And so all these victories... Uh, remind us that we can do hard things, you know, and I mean H-E-A-R-T, our heart-connected efforts to create worlds that reflect more justice and equality. So as you face 2021, you know, um, and with the view of 2020 that, you know, despite the pandemic, there were 26 million people who participated in the Black Lives Matter rallies, you know, there are more people aware of injustice and, and willing to participate in creating a world with justice than there are groups of, you know, fascists, as you call it, you know, people who are, you know, trying to create uh, devastation. Their numbers are small. You know, when I look at those uh, that video, I, I see maybe, you know, if lucky, 100,000 people. But, you know, we have millions on our side. So I, I'm encouraged that... As you say, surviving is also part of resistance and also caring for the dream, you know, having a dream. My mom always says that hopelessness precedes disease. And, um, <laughs> you know, right. the last thing we must give is our hope and that, that we can trust and connect with others and create beautiful things. Because there are more love, uh, you know, abiding people than 
people who want to promote hate. So as we come to the close of our interview, I, I do want to give you the last word and perhaps po- paint a picture for us. How, how do you envision 2021 unfolding and what what projects do you hope to see flourish? Um, how will you keep yourself energized and in the energy of you know, struggle that leads to a beautiful outcome. Well, I think you, you pointed to one of the most important things, you know, 20, what is it? 26 million. Did you say that people had participated in a black lives um, protest or march or or rally um, this year, even during the pandemic? Um, You know, that's, that's really important because as you say, we are many. And of course we have to organize ourselves. Um, just having numbers is not all there is to it. Um, but that process is, is happening. And I think that it's going to keep on happening um, during 2021. I hope that, you know, we get a vaccine and we're going to be able to do things like organized marches and demonstrations and other things like that, that, that we have not been able to do at least in the same way. But I think the fact that we have survived and we've survived with our movements intact is a, is a very good thing. And it enables us to keep to keep going this coming year. And, and there are important things that we are going to have to fight about, whether it's to prevent you know, war, whether it's with war with China or whether it's the continuation of the endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That we have to fight about that. Um, we have to fight about equality and the police. We have to fight about the um, having a just immigration um, reform or the, the getting rid of the inequality as it affects um, immigrant people from other places. Um, all of these things, unions and, and workers, we have a lot in front of us. But I feel I feel good about, you know, 2021. I think that, you know, it's within us to be able to do it. I, I find that your work particularly inspires me because you've picked um, the essence. You know, food is essential. Like we can we can live without a, a car. We can live without even we can we can live without a house. You know, what I mean, we can survive the elements sometimes. But um, but without food, you know, to to think about the people who produce our food, to think about the conditions under which that food is produced, to begin our struggle there, it, for me, that's ground zero, you know, where, where the reproductive and productive labor connects us. You know, I think of the women, I think of the men who not only, you know, tend to the soil, but also ensure that, that we have abundance you know and and that really is the center of our struggle so what will be your call to action to all trade unionists whether they work in universities or whether they work in factories um you know how will we unite our efforts to create a world that has justice for all we know Leela downs has a new song um called dark eyes that she is putting out right now. And um, it's about essential workers and about um, farm workers and about people of color and immigrants and women and people on the bottom. And it's about children and, you know, the love that we have for our children. So um, that's, you know, that's pretty exciting to me. I think 
food, you know, food is not just something that we need in order to live, but but the creation of food and giving food from one person to another, whether it's cooking food for your family or whether it's people um, doing the work out in the fields that provides the food that we eat on the table. In, in many ways, I think food is something that we do for each other, um, partly because we love each other and partly because we are human beings and we share this and it is a need and it's also something that, um, that makes us human. It's very fundamental and it's very basic and it's very important. And um, it's not that we can do without, you know, houses or, or cars. You know, we need those things too. But there is something about um, producing food and then what we do with the food once once it's, you know, out of the field um, and what happens to the people who do the production of it that shows us who we are as people, what, what kind of society we live in. You know, so if we want to live in a just world and a just society, then I think this is that's a very good place to start. You know, we need to look at it really seriously, everything from what happens to the people who produce that food and the people's drive and need for equality and, and justice when they do it, to then um, the kind of food that's produced and so that it's food that is produced for the purpose of sustaining us and not simply for making a profit for a potato chip company. Um, and then how we deal with it within our own families and our own communities and to sort of reinforce those collective ways in which food becomes something that binds us, binds us together, all of those things. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you for your beautiful book. Um, we have like a minute left if you want to maybe just give the audience a little taster of what they would find in that book and how they can access it. That would be wonderful. Sure. Well, Illegal People is a book about um, migration and the migration system and um, the displacement of people and their search for justice. And then I also have another book that's called um, In the Fields of the North, which is a book of photographs and oral histories of farm workers and people working in the fields. Um, I have you know, some other books as well, too. Um, and the way you find them is basically you Google for my name, um, David Bacon. Um, I have a blog out there called The Reality Check. If you Google my name and The Reality Check, you can find the blog and then you can also um, find the books and and what what they do is they try to paint a picture of life um, life on the ground life as it actually is whether it's in photographs or in words or in whether those words are my words or the words of people themselves these books have them all mixed together there beautiful and amazing work thank you so much for all that you do and thank you for being with us this morning well, thank you, Sylvia. You do wonderful work yourself. I appreciate being on your show. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.